0: And it is through our connection in Christ that bonds us together, fueled by the word and encouraged by it, that I get to celebrate with you one last epiphany sign and wonder with you today, the best of them all. In his name, Jesus' name, my dear friends, what a pleasure to spend a few minutes with you in the word on this glorious, glorious morning. You know, I live on Brady Street, mostly love it. You have to fight the drinking crowd on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. For all those years, we had to park on the street, uh, which also was a chore. Our neighborhood has very tiny, skinny lots, and there are not enough garages to go around. True enough, but it's still a pretty cool street anyway. Italians used to live south of it, and Polish people lived north of it. So you have St. Rita's Catholic Church for the Italians, and St. Hedwig's was for the Poles. Still today, there's remnants of those old cultures there. Then it became the hippie territory. Uh, back in my day when I was in college, we used to uh, come down here for uh, suburbia sandwiches and records at 1812 Overture. A couple of you ancient people uh, possibly remember those hippie days. And then it went into long decline right when we decided to move in, <laughs> try to single-handedly turn the tide of the neighborhood. There's a cool, uh, a cool thing that used to exist on Brady Street. In 1894, there was a house right on Brady, on the north side of Brady, right next to Van Buren, right before the bridge goes across and become, when it becomes Holden Street. Child mortality was terrible in the 1800s. More depressing and sad than you could ever imagine. The stories just abound. Like, here's one. My, I got a picture of my great-grandfather on the wall of our dining room. And you can see he was part of a huge family. There were eight siblings in all. You can see all of them, four boys and four girls, except there were four more. He was actually not one of eight. He was one of 12. In Union Cemetery, clustered near the graves of my great-great-grandparents are four tiny little graves for the little ones who never made it even to their first day of school. How would that not rip your heart out? of all of the pains that you and I have to bear, arthritis, financial reversals, divorce, abandonment, uh, being turned on by your children, being turned on by your spouse or the boyfriend or girlfriend that you thought was yours forever and getting dumped like that. This pain is worse. The pain of losing a child, I would rather experience anything than that. I don't know where you are at on the taxonomy of pain but for me that's a 10 i cannot imagine anything worse and it just and because it it's not over it's never over it just keeps hurting and you're so painfully aware of this missing kid uh man uh carol my wife carol is missing an aunt she never met because she died as a baby in her father father's arms on christmas eve oh man Oh, how could you ever be normal after going through that experience? How could you stop crying? That's just horrible. So child mortality was terrible. Many children died in infancy and of, of diseases. Uh, some were preventable. Others just swept through. And a, a, a committee of Milwaukeeans, mainly women, said, we have got to have a hospital for children that will be dedicated to their needs and that will be staffed with people who are experts in things that afflict children. So they rented a house on Brady and Van Buren, and they called it the Free Children's Hospital. They cleared out all the stuff out of the inside and made 10 little rooms for their little peanut um, patients. And it was such a hit that in five years, they were grossly overwhelmed. Uh, Then they moved, they rented or bought a second house. This building is still there. You can still see it. It's a brick Victorian house on Farwell, halfway between Shank Hall and the Maharaja Indian restaurant. I bet if you think of it, some of you Eastsiders like me think, oh, I've driven past that big old brick house. I bet I know just which one he's talking about. And it was called the Free Children's Hospital. In five years, they overwhelmed that too. They built more of a warehousey type typical hospital on 10th and Wells, overwhelmed that 1923 built a great big brick building on Wisconsin Avenue where a a huge mansion of the super rich used to stand. Uh, See Milwaukee has lost most of its mansions and I've sort of come to peace with it. For me it hurts it's like losing public art but here's the problem with jumbo super mansions of the super rich. It's not enough for one rich couple to live there but you need another one when they're dead right and then another one. And the fashion changed and rich people didn't want to live on 17th and Wisconsin anymore. So this mansion was an enormous mansion built by a guy named Rudolf Nunnemacher who had a, was a distiller. He had a distilling empire in Milwaukee before Prohibition. His gigantic mansion was torn down and a children's hospital was built in its place. Now, if, you're, if you've been around Milwaukee a while, some of you remember the old children's hospital on 17th and Wisconsin. Well, it was getting by 1980, uh, the facilities were no longer current. Uh, They weren't state-of-the-art and they didn't have enough room to expand. It was kind of boxed in by the city. Plus, as usual, Marquette University wanted the space. Marquette's pretty much eating everything on the near west side, isn't it? And so in 1988, they opened this brand new state-of-the-art, which now is the core building of the children's campus. Uh, Now it's been added to another three towers and it's just this It's like a city within a city itself. Children's is huge. And I am glad so much for that hospital. All four of our children have enjoyed stays at that little hotel. In fact, we were so glad one of our children, I won't mention which one, was baptized in the triage room of the emergency room there, uh, since we weren't certain if that person was going to make it to the baptism date here in church. Uh, so that, that kid of ours became a Jesus baby at the children's campus, and we are grateful for it, mighty grateful. And I'm, all of you with kids should be feel really good that we've got a facility like that within easy range of you. I want to talk to you about losing a child today, and I may lose it once or twice going through this because this is so heart-wrenching, a story to share with you. I have a daughter, too, and this is about a, a little girl who was deadly ill, and I just feel this weight on my heart just thinking about it. And I. so please bear with me uh, as I'm navigating through this. This is really a big deal. It's about a sixth grader, just a kid whose life was about to be yanked away from her right on the cusp of becoming a woman. It's a terrible story. And it's been repeated all over the place. It's not just old people who die. Kids die too. And as I said, that to me on the pain scale is a 10 out of 10. And a guy I resonate with, a church boy, his name is Jairus, was a ruler of the synagogue. I think if, I, if my geography is correct, I think Jesus and his traveling disciples are back in Capernaum, uh, the Appleton of the Sea of Galilee up in the Northwest edge. That was where the greatest population concentration was in Galilee and Jesus spent a lot of his Galilee in ministry. Well, duh, where the people are, why wouldn't you? Here's where our story begins. Grab your Bible if it's near you. And I wanna start at verse 40 in Luke chapter nine. And I invite you to look that up with me. We're gonna have to leapfrog an interruption. There's another female who needed him badly, a woman plagued with hemorrhaging, which must have just wrecked her life. If you're hemorrhaging, if you're bleeding all the time, you're losing blood, you're undoubtedly anemic, Right? How would you? How could you not be anemic? Must have been exhausted, no strength, and sickly. Because we need our blood. Our blood is our a key part of our defense system for our body. Because of the press of time, I have to jump over her story. So let's talk about Jairus, who's um, one of the on the board of directors of the synagogue, at, probably in Capernaum that Jesus himself undoubtedly was at. So this man maybe knew Jesus. Certainly was aware of him and aware of his reputation. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. They were all expecting him. They knew he'd be back. Uh, he had just returned from driving demons out of a demon-possessed man, which, by the way, to me is such a telling thing. Satan whispers pleasures to you. He, he sells you power and pleasure. Oh, like, what could be better than that? Don't you kind of crave both of those things? Seriously? Who doesn't like power? Everybody loves power. We all have issues with trying to control other people. We all have issues of preferring to talk than listen. And pleasure? Think what you wouldn't do. Think what you've sold. Think what you've given away of yourself to chase after some pleasurable experience because you thought it would be fulfilling. But Satan lies, lies, lies. Those don't give you freedom, power, or pleasure. They give you misery and enslavement and just leave you bitter and empty inside. When Jesus comes into connection with your life, he he loves us in direct opposition to how the evil one thinks about you. Satan hates you. He wants to make you as miserable as he is and only whispers pleasurable things to you, to lie to you, so that your joy can be actually stolen away. So uh, they're all expecting Jesus. Just then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet. He didn't trip. He didn't step on a banana peel. He knelt down and got his face near the ground. We don't do that so much anymore. America's built on this kind of egalitarian model where you know you and I, we're as good as the president of the United States, but we don't have to kneel You don't have to curtsy, ladies. Guys, you don't have to kneel in front of our president. Uh, You can just look him right in the eye. You can say, hello, Mr. President, and stand straight up. You don't even have to bow or anything. Uh, You can shake his hand. But in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, when you want to make someone else look big, you make yourself small. So you get, that's why people got down, on one knee or in this case you did it like the middle eastern way you got all the way down on the ground and put your face all the way down to the ground you can still see that today in the way muslims pray they get on their prayer rugs and their heads go all the way down to the ground they are making themselves small in front of their god allah jairus wanted jesus not only to know from his talk of his respect but from his gestures You are great and I am small. I'm going to ask you for something that only a very big God could do. And I'm going to make myself small so you know that I think you are big enough for the job. It's a very big job. Jairus says he wants Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter. Oh, Here it starts. I have a daughter, too. She was in sixth grade. She's just a kid. Her whole life's before her. She managed to survive all the infant uh, illnesses, and now she's dying. What if that was your daughter? So Jairus' heart is so heavy. Now, you got to jump over the intervening story with me. We just don't have time for it. Jump ahead to verse 49. While Jesus is talking to the woman that he healed of this chronic hemorrhaging, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said tactfully and subtly. Don't bother the teacher anymore. So their idea of Jesus was sort of like a superman or superhuman, like somebody, like a human being who had some really cool tricks and was able to tap into some kind of healing power somewhere he was like a naturopathic healer that's as far as their brains went this is now beyond him so i'm going to hit the brakes right now and just get in your face too how big is your jesus is he sort of marginal in your life like whenever you think of it you might acknowledge his existence is jesus a minor irritation uh, throwing some shade on you when you're going to do something pleasurable and fun with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and they think, no, Jesus probably wouldn't like this. And he's kind of an irritation to you. And so you kind of push him out of your mind and don't think about it too much. When you're thinking about stealing something and you're feeling a little guilty, like, should I do this? Is Jesus in the room or do you know how to put him in the closet and stay out of the way until you need money or something? Is he just your ATM machine that you go punch in the code, like you go through your little ritual, and then he'll cough out some cash for you when you need it? How big is your Jesus? Where does he sit in your life? In the basement? In the garage? In the next city over? Up in the sky somewhere far away from you? Or is he truly the living ruler of the universe, your creator, you, without him, nothing was made that was made, which includes you? Is he your Lord and Savior? We're all about saying, Lord, I screwed up, forgive me. That the Savior part is fun. Do you pray to Jesus also as your Lord? Do you look every day to give him your obedience? Or is he a nuisance, keeping you from a more fulfilling lifestyle? How big is your Jesus? On a scale of 1 to 10, where is he? To these people, he was about a four. He might be pretty good with diseases, but death is bigger than him. They said, don't bother the teacher. And see, of course Jesus is a teacher. He's my teacher and yours too. But more than just that, they thought he wasn't much more than just that. When he heard this, Jesus didn't swing into action right away. He did some talking. He said to a heartbroken man, don't be afraid. Oh, man, that is... The purest gospel, if you sum up the gospel message of scripture, you couldn't find three words closer to the heart of it than those. Don't be afraid. Oh, my friends, do not be afraid. I'm here. How big do you think I am? I'm here. I got answers for what you need. I'm here. Don't panic. God is in human flesh is here. I am your God and I'm here to help you. I'm not going to abuse you like the demons here to help you. I don't have contempt for you, sinners though you are. I love you. My love for you is greater than my judgment and condemnation of your sin. My mercy trumps judgment. Don't be afraid because I'm here now. I'll hold you. It's okay. Just believe and she'll be healed. He said the word healed. What's wrong with her will be fixed. And Jairus's head is spinning at this point. I hope he said nothing rather than blurting like the disciples, blurting something dumb. He didn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, possibly because there wasn't room, but possibly for special training because he had special jobs for each of these. Peter... Sorta was the chairman of the committee, you know. He was the lead dog, and he often spoke for the group, and Jesus wanted him saying the right things if he's going to speak for the group. John was going to be chosen to write not one, but five books of the New Testament. He was going to live the longest of all the disciples, and his tone and leadership would set the tone for all of Christendom in the eastern Mediterranean area. He was going to have to suffer a living martyrdom by being exiled on Patmos. And his brother James was going to be the first martyr. He was going to be killed, first of the disciples to be martyred. And Jesus gave him a gift to encourage him in his last hours, as just before he was beheaded, as he was kneeling down. I hope he remembered Jesus on his bedroom. (laughs) Sorry, Try not to lose it. This is hard. All the people there were wailing and mourning for They were setting up a racket, thinking that by the volume of their wailing, they would show their sincerity. But I think some of it was faked because the minute Jesus said, stop wailing, she's not dead but asleep, they started laughing. If you're truly grieving, you can't go from wailing into laughter just like that. I think they were just putting on a show to try to make Jairus and his family feel better. But Jesus said some. In fact, you sang about this about a half an hour ago. This child is not dead, but sleeping. Who but Jesus could get away with saying something so outrageous? He meant it and now was going to demonstrate doing something about it. This is true for you. Someday the bed you're lying on, is one you're never gonna get up from. And you don't know which time that's gonna be, which day in your life that's gonna be. Our our days of our death are in the fog in front of us. It's coming, but we don't know when. Are you scared about that? I don't blame you. You should be scared uh, to some degree about that because death is a judgment for human evil and we're part of that. We're part of Adam and Eve's conspiracy. And so the punishment on Adam and Eve, dust you are into dust you'll return, hangs over us too and our children. They're not pure and innocent just because they're little, they inherited your sinful flesh. And that means that they're mortal as well. But Jesus says, Don't be afraid. I have healing. Just believe, believe in me. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. They had all the science on their side because dead people don't rise. But Jesus said, well, sometimes they do. He took the dead girl by the hand, already cooling off, no pulse in that wrist. Her body temp had been dropping ever since her heart had stopped beating. And he said, he spoke, my child, get up. And her spirit returned amazing how big is your Jesus is the Jesus you say you worship big enough to do this at once she stood up and then Jesus said to the people around what are you waiting for she's starving get her some lunch she probably hasn't eaten anything in four days feed the girl don't be afraid she can take it everything's fine I told you I would heal her I can heal people even of death So amazing. The parents were astonished. He ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. i got to pause there for just a minute because that is such a counterintuitive statement. How how long have you been reading the Bible and hanging around with other Christians and been part of a congregation? And especially we pastors are always on each other, pastors, and also on you to be sharers of the word. I'm always on you to... To tell the word, share with people in your family, among your network. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Be proud of Jesus. Help the seekers find what they're looking for. Help the lonely find the ultimate connection. Help the guilty find forgiveness. Help the clueless and meaningless in their lives find some meaning and purpose. And now Jesus says, but shh, don't tell anybody. Why would he say that? Why on earth? Would he say that? Wouldn't this be the coolest story ever to get people to come and have a look at him? Jesus knew he had to be careful with these miracles. That's why he chose only very specific special times to do it when he broke what looked like the laws of nature because he knew people were going to get distracted by the physicality of it and not get his real point. His real reason for doing this was to dial people into him. I'm your life preserver. You've got to hang on to me in faith if you want to survive the conflagration that's coming. And I don't want you getting distracted to think that I'm just going to start doing stuff for you. Like two weeks ago, I talked with you about the miraculous catch of fish. Jesus did not want his disciples to think, dang, we don't have to work anymore. That Jesus is going to, he's going to feed us like... He's a fish machine. We're just going to go out there. The fish are going to jump in the boat. We'll row back and sell it. And then we can lie on the beach and work on our tan. He fed 5,000 people, but he did not want people to think, man, being a Christian means he's a food manufacturing center. The food, the sandwiches will just keep coming. I don't have to work. Oh, this is awesome. One time in order to pay their taxes, he told Peter, go, go catch a fish, look, look in his mouth. And there was the gold temple tax coin in the fish's mouth. Free money! What could be better than that? What religion would not have millions and millions of adherents? If you had a fish pond and everybody would go get your, your gold coin every Sunday, wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be a lot of fun? Would totally destroy your faith in your Savior. Every one of Jesus' miracles were done to demonstrate, first of all, his compassionate heart, his insane power as creator of the universe and still the sustainer of it, his mastery over all things in creation. He is the life source and can drive out even death. Even death loses its grip on someone to whom Christ has said, be alive. That's how big he is. But his greatest gift to you is what he's going to do by offering up his sacred body on the cross. For there is the center of it all. That is what you need to have first. It's like when when a disabled man was lowered on his mat right through a roof. And Jesus looked at the man broken and crippled with a horrible life, hoping against hope he would get the use of his legs back and Jesus said to him, remember what the first thing he said was? Was not take up your bed and walk. That was the second thing he said. But the first thing he said was the more important thing. And he said, you all get extra coffee today. I heard lots of people with the right answer. And I'm so proud of you. I could bust the buttons off my shirt right now. Your sins are forgiven. That was his first gift. That's the main gift. If you're dialed into that, then Jesus can find room where he can do the outward physical things to help us along our path. Another knotty question we got to talk about is okay, this is real cool. So three cheers for Jairus. Then why did my niece die early? Why didn't Jesus stop that funeral and reverse it? Why are your families Sharing stories about people in your relationship of young people and babies who've died. Think of all of the miscarriages and stillbirths. Why are those oceans of tears not wiped away? Why doesn't Jesus stop them all? This was not, um, he is not giving you a pattern like if you just believe hard enough and say the right prayer formula your dead children and grandchildren will pop back to life too, at least in front of your eyes at that moment. He's putting out a demo to build your confidence that he's going to do this on a grand scale. Jesus did a little bit of patching up here and there, and in your life too. He's done a little bit of patching up of the wounds that you have, but you're still going to be, when you slide into heaven, you'll be limping. You may even be completely immobilized by the time you finally die. But eventually Jesus is going to utter his command and all of us are going to sit bolt upright wherever we landed and rise up once again. And our spirits from heaven will be joined together in our bodies and we will experience and witness on a grand scale the resurrection of the body. Here is your encouragement to believe that he can do that. As he demonstrated to a sixth grade girl, he spoke the word and she leaped to her feet. But what's even better is he said, just believe, believe in me. And he did that to direct their hopes and faith in him. For without Christ, you have nothing. With him, you have everything. Without him, you are guilty and condemned with him. You are as holy and pure as he is in God's eyes. Without Jesus, you are mortal with a toe tag for hell. With Christ, you are as immortal as he is. I say to you, arise. And she did. Just think about that today. How big is your Jesus? Amen.